This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Colorectal cancer is the third most commonly occurring cancer for both men and women and ranks second to lung cancer as a cause of cancer mortality. Yet it's estimated that up to one quarter of eligible adults in the United States have never been screened for colorectal cancer and nearly a third aren't up to date with their screening. We now have a variety of accepted screening tests for colorectal cancer and each carries its own risks and benefits. Today's podcast will review colorectal cancer screening, and our guest is gastroenterologist Dr. John Kissel from the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss when we should start screening, the various available screening tests, as well as their advantages and limitations. John, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Daryl, very much for having me. Well, let's start by talking about when we should start screening, because there is a recent recommendation made that we should now be starting average risk patients maybe around the age of 45 instead of 50. Why was this uh, recommendation made? Yeah, it's a great question. So this is really the big story in colorectal cancer screening coming out within the last 12 months or so. It has been known probably for about five years or so from epidemiologic research in cancer registries in the United States, the SEER database, which many listeners may be familiar with, and work that was uh, done highlighted that the incidence of colon cancer and death rate from colon cancer is actually growing relatively rapidly in patients under the age of 50. So we've seen huge shifts downward and probably likely from the benefits of screening in individuals 65 and older, but we're seeing an unfavorable trend in younger individuals. And we really don't know why, but there's been a a call to action to try to address this problem. What we know in terms of preventing colorectal cancer from happening in the first place, and therefore helping to prevent colorectal cancer deaths, is that removing large advanced precursorous lesions or colon polyps actually makes a much bigger difference in terms of colorectal cancer deaths averted and life years gained from participating in screening than the benefit that we see from finding early stage cancers. So it's actually finding the large polyps that makes the biggest difference. And there have been other studies that have shown that the rates of advanced precursor polyps in patients roughly age 45 to 49 are nearly identical to the rates of precancerous, uh, screen-relevant precancerous polyps that we find in those age 50 to 55. And so it seems to make logical sense that now shifting the screening examinations down to those patients age 45 and up would make a potentially serious um, ding in the trends that we're seeing. We have not yet been able to measure that directly in real world patient settings, but we have been able to use micro simulation modeling. And there are at least three or four very well validated and well vetted uh, micro simulation models that project what the benefits of screening will be over a person's lifetime or over the lifetime of sort of a thousand theoretical people. What those have shown is that there is um, a substantial gain in high quality life years and a substantial number of colorectal cancer deaths averted from starting screening at age 45. 
in looking at what additional costs that would have to society and to those patients, we can quantify the number of additional screening tests that that would require, the money that that would require, the potential complications from an injury at, say, a, a screening colonoscopy or a diagnostic colonoscopy. And it looks as though the benefits are substantial for a modest cost and a fairly low likelihood of harm. Many people then ask, well, why shouldn't we start screening even younger, potentially even uh, age 40? And there we don't see at least data supporting that the number of advanced precursor polyps is similar. They, they tend to fall off sh sharply before age 45. And so the benefits would be there for screening those patients, but the costs would be substantially higher, you know, one and a half to two times higher than screening 45 and up. And so those are some of the pieces of evidence that various groups like the Multi-Society Task Force, the United States Preventative Services Task Force, and American Cancer Society made in putting forth these new recommendations. They're not based on high quality evidence. They're probably low quality observational evidence and modeling, but there is pretty convincing evidence of at least a moderate benefit. And that's why USPSTF, which is probably um, the highest authority regarding screening, gave screening from 45 up a, a grade B recommendation. Uh, so moderate benefit and moderate quality evidence in their eyes. So right. big step forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, who's considered at increased risk of developing colorectal cancer? Probably the biggest risk that we know of is your family history. So if you have a first degree relative who had colon cancer or an advanced precursorous lesion diagnosed before age 60, that's a significant risk factor that would prompt us to actually initiate your screening at age 40 or 10 years before that individual was diagnosed. If you have two first degree relatives with that history, regardless of their age, we would make the same recommendation. There are patients that seem to form polyps at a very high rate. We often will screen them for hereditary disorders, so the so-called hereditary polyposis and non-polyposis colorectal cancers. Those would be diseases like FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis, Lynch syndrome, which is probably the most common hereditary cancer disorder, about one in 300 people, and then the much rarer um, hematomatous polyposis syndromes. But there are also people that have a predisposition to form polyps where we don't have a genetic or hereditary explanation for that that we're aware of yet. We call those sort of polyposes not otherwise specified. So a patient goes in for screening and we find 10 or more polyps at a single setting. Those patients are definitely at increased risk. And probably the most common polyposis syndrome that listeners should be aware of is serrated polyposis syndrome. That's defined by WHO criteria as having uh, five or more serrated polyps in, in the proximal colon, at least two of which are a centimeter in size, or more than 20 serrated polyps scattered throughout the colon. And that's a lifetime uh, rate of finding. So oftentimes it's the, the primary care provider who's receiving those reports and connecting the dots over time. The endoscopist may just be seeing that patient once. And so serrated polyposis syndrome, very common and under-recognized and without a genetic component to it. And those patients actually, we initially Actually, we'll, we'll do surveillance colonoscopy on those people annually until we can get a good sense of the rate at which they form polyps and making sure that we're not finding larger ones that are more difficult to remove. And then maybe we can relax the schedule out to every two or three years at a minimum. Mm -hmm. Well, as you mentioned, we're ideally looking for polyps that have the potential to turn into a malignancy. 
Is it known approximately how long it takes a polyp to develop into a malignancy? Yes. So in the general population, we think that that time is about 10 years. And some of that comes from observational studies that were done with old barium x-rays in, in patients that were known to have a polyp and, uh, and refused to have it removed. We used to have to remove those surgically. So there'd be patients that would say, no, I don't want that. And we would observe them and get a sense of what the doubling time of the polyps or the growth rate would be. We think though that in patients that have hereditary disorders or polyp forming disorders, that that growth pathway from apparently normal colonic lining to polyp to cancer may be dramatically accelerated. And that growth pattern can also be accelerated by chronic inflammation. So the, the group, very important group, dear to my heart that I forgot to mention earlier in your prior question is patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis involving an extensive part of the colon. They're also at heightened risk and, and really go down more towards a surveillance pathway than a screening pathway. Okay. Well, you've mentioned when we should start screening. Let's look at the other end of the spectrum. When can we stop screening? And I find it easier in patients who have had no history of polyps, but how about those who've had a history of adenomatous polyps? Uh, is there a stop date for them too? That's a question that we're asked very frequently in a, in a challenging situation to counsel a patient through. The USPSTF essentially gives a, a grade C recommendation to uh, screening in patients over 75 years of age. And I think there's fairly broad consensus that if someone has not had a colonoscopy or a screening test before, and they've not had prior polyps before, that probably initiating screening at age 86 and up is probably not a good idea at all. As patients get older and have more comorbidities, the number needed to screen in terms of finding an actionable and beneficial screen-relevant neoplasm at, at a screening test starts to fall below the number needed to harm. So you can actually cause more harm to patients than the benefit from screening as their age and comorbidities go up. A rule of thumb we've used for a long time is that if you think a patient has at least um, 10 high quality life years left, you could consider continuing screening if they haven't had polyps before. But that conversation with the patient has to be very individualized. And it is substantially harder if you have a patient that has had polyps in the past. I would say if they've been generally low risk polyps, the benefits to future screening are probably lower. If you have a, an adenoma or a serrated lesion that's under a centimeter in, in size without villus elements or high grade dysplasia, you know, only one or two of these at a time, the risk of developing an advanced neoplasm or a cancer at their next screening interval is, is pretty low, almost as, as low as somebody who's had a normal colonoscopy in the past. It gets more challenging, of course, course, as the findings of prior colonoscopies become more advanced and more worrisome. One of the things that I think we should be doing a better job of as gastroenterologists is letting primary care physicians and advanced practitioners know that it's okay to stop. So if we put something in our documentation, like, you know, a patient has to come back in five years, mm -hmm. I often get the feedback that, boy, I felt like I had to do that because you put it in your note. So I, I uh, try now to say, you know, consider having a discussion about the benefits of screening with the patient because the returns obviously diminish. Sure. Okay. Well, let's talk about the variety of available screening tests. Let's start with uh, radiologic studies. Let's mention the advantages and disadvantages. And here I'm talking mostly CT colonography, because I don't think I've seen a barium enema being used for quite a few years now. 
Yeah, I, I don't know how many people are around that will still be able to read a barium enema, but um, <laughs> uh, CT colonography is a, an interesting tool. It is non-invasive. It does require bowel preparation. There are some newer approaches and techniques that the radiologist can actually kind of digitally subtract stool residue uh, and, and still try to detect polyps reasonably well. It's got reasonable sensitivity in the hands of expert operators in comparison to colonoscopy. But the big challenge is that it's not widely covered and that's limited the or adoption of that test in many practices. I believe it is not covered by Medicare. We use that in our practice most often as a salvage for a failed colonoscopy. If a patient has difficult or challenging anatomy and we're not able to complete the exam, we have several slots a day at Rochester that are reserved uh, where we can finish the colonoscopy and route that patient directly to radiology just to make sure that we're not leaving something really worrisome behind. But any positive finding on a CT colonography does ultimately have to be followed up by a diagnostic colonoscopy. For any of the non-invasive tests, I think uh, an important uh, sort of interlude in this line of, of the conversation is the recent announcement by the Department of Labor that for a positive non-invasive test, the follow-up colonoscopy is now going to be covered by insurance. I don't know how broadly that's been implemented yet, but that's um, an incredibly positive sign that we consider not only the the non-invasive screening test, but also the follow-up colonoscopy uh, as part of a single episode of screening. And so I think that's a very positive step. That's going to apply to the multi-target stool DNA test or Cologuard, the fecal immunochemical test, Flexig, in terms of then assessing the rest of the colon if we find something on the left. I know I've had a few patients request the CT because they want to avoid uh, colonoscopy, but the actual colonoscopy is not the issue. It's the prep. And that's right. Prep and you still have to do that with don't CT. don't have to do that. Yeah. The other thing too, that um, can sometimes be uncomfortable for patients is that the colon has to be insufflated. So there's a, an occlusion balloon that's placed in the rectum to help instill air uh, into the colon in order to be able to create an air tissue interface to, uh, to highlight polyps. All right. Well, let's move on to the fecal tests. Um, I remember years ago, we used to test the patient's uh, stool in the office with a little uh, pad of uh, special paper and drops of liquid, but it's gone way beyond that now. So tell us what's available for the fecal tests. Yeah, the old practice of using GWIAC-based uh, fecal occult blood testing in the office has actually probably been sharply discouraged since probably the mid-2000s because the point sensitivity of that approach is very low. Fecal testing for occult blood has evolved uh, rapidly and that the probably two big players there are fecal immunochemical testing. That's a newer method to look for occult blood. That's a test that can be mailed to a patient's house and returned to a central lab. The advantage of that test, again, it can be done in one's own home and privacy, and it's fairly portable and fairly cheap to use. The difficulty is that it's not particularly sensitive for advanced polyps. And that means that to be effective in programmatic longitudinal use, it has to be done annually. And that's very, very difficult for patients and, and hospital systems to adhere to, even in clinical trial settings. The newer test that's stool-based is the multi-target stool DNA test. So that does use a measurement of fecal hemoglobin, but also assays 
DNA markers, both mutation and methylation targets. And that has substantially higher sensitivity for uh, precancerous polyps and sensitivity for colon cancer in the 92, 93% range for stage uh, one, two, and three disease. That's been available since about 2014. Uptake of that has been fairly exponential, but probably nationwide, not used quite as often yet as, as fecal immunochemical testing. And colonoscopy is still uh, probably the most commonly used test. So who's a candidate for these uh, fecal tests? Fecal testing really should be used in persons who are at average risk. So those who don't have that strong family history we talked about earlier, definitely not persons who've had prior polyps. In my own practice, I will use it in people who've had prior small polyps, but if you've had an advanced precursorous lesion, so something bigger than a centimeter, high-grade dysplasia, villus architecture, and or, you know, supernumerary polyps, you know, three or more at a single setting, I usually would not encourage the use of, uh, of stool DNA testing in that setting, and that would be against FDA labeling as well. Mm -hmm. So how sensitive is this test? Do we know how often it might miss a patient that has uh, worrisome polyps or even colon cancer? The false negative rate for colorectal cancer is uh, something on the order of three patients out of uh, nearly 10,000. So it's a, a pretty low likelihood that cancer would miss. That number is not zero. It's a small number, but it's not zero. For advanced precursorous lesions, the overall sensitivity for the FDA endpoint of any polyp greater than a centimeter or equal to a centimeter is 42% in the FDA pivotal trial. But there are now a lot of data to show that as polyps get bigger than that, meaning as they're closer to progressing towards cancer, the sensitivity gets much higher. So in the pivotal study, the sensitivity for polyps you know, three centimeters in size was nearly 70%, and the same for polyps with high-grade dysplasia. We're really excited to be able to release some of our own real-world experience data from our patient population uh, across the Mayo Enterprise, so not just in Rochester, but our, our community health system, our practices in Florida and Arizona. And what we see is that in contrast to a blinded clinical trial, that endoscopists actually find quite a bit more polyps in the real practice where they're unblinded and they're now aware that a patient is coming into them for the indication of a positive uh, stool DNA test. We find twice as many polyps per patient and our overall rate of polyp detection increases substantially over what we see in our routine screening practice. And that's kind of expected because you're enriching the patient population as a result of the positive screen. We're also starting to see patients coming back for, you know, second rounds of screening. You know, they had a negative stool test the first time. Now they're coming back with a positive test on their second round. And we're seeing that the positive predictive value for advanced colorectal precursors or precursors of any kind uh, is very consistent from interval to interval. One issue I've come up against, not very often, but when the fecal DNA test is positive, and then you proceed with the colonoscopy and no polyps are found. Uh, what do we do in that situation? It has been a head scratcher for some time. We knew from prototype tests as far back as the early 2000s that the rate of any additional diagnostic testing for those patients was incredibly low. At one point with a stool DNA test prototype, we had a protocol open here where we did a, an EGD and a CT scan on every apparent false positive uh, patient. And the IRB made us close that study down after 60 consecutive futile examinations in those patients. 
from clinical trials from the FDA pivotal study, we did take about uh, a little over 200 patients that had a positive stool test and a negative colonoscopy and compared those to patients who had a negative stool test and a negative colonoscopy. And what we found is that the rate of development of subsequent cancers anywhere along the, the GI tract or even including the lungs, which exfoliate DNA into the GI tract was essentially equivalent between those two groups. So that was with about five and a half years of follow-up for the cohort. It's certainly not definitive evidence that a false positive test is low risk, but it's pretty reassuring. And the first cancer that we saw come up in the apparent false positive group was more than three years after the positive stool DNA test. So it, it doesn't necessarily fit very well with a temporal association that those two events are linked. It's definitely an area of active research. We're kind of tracking that through registry studies and you know people are interested in, in what to do in that situation. And it's obviously causes a lot of concern for patients and providers. It's important to note, however, that patients who are in those clinical trials, um, in order to have their data included in the final analysis, they had to have a complete colonoscopy with photo documentation of cecal intubation. They had to have at least adequate, if not good or excellent bowel prep, and they had to have a withdrawal time of at least six minutes. So it has to be a very high quality colonoscopy. So the first thing I would do in that situation would be to look at the colonoscopy report very carefully and make sure that all of the check boxes for colonoscopy quality were met. Second, this would apply to patients who are purely average risk. So they have no anemia, they have no abdominal pain, they have no other B symptoms or localizing signs that could indicate a malignancy. And so I think if you meet both of those criteria, it's perfectly safe to continue to just observe that patient. And now that they've had a negative colonoscopy, they probably do not need to come back for screening for another 10 years. All right. It's That's also great. worth noting that when patients have a positive fecal immunochemical test and a negative colonoscopy, that there is no further diagnostic evaluation planned for those patients either in the absence of any localizing signs or symptoms. Okay. So let's proceed to endoscopy, flexible sigmoidoscopy, colonoscopy. So flexible sigmoidoscopy is one of only two screening modalities that have randomized control trial evidence supporting its benefit. Blood testing uh, by GUIAC being the other uh, method that has RCT evidence. The challenge with flexible sigmoidoscopy, however, is that polyps can occur anywhere in the colon and about half of those are going to be proximal to the splenic flexure, which flexible sigmoidoscopy does not examine. So when you look at the benefits in cancer incidence and cancer mortality from FlexSig, it's really primarily conferred to the left colon. So the right colon is essentially left unprotected. For those patients that do have polyps on the left colon, that will trigger a diagnostic colonoscopy to evaluate the right, but it is perfectly possible for patients to develop polyps on the right side of the colon and not have any on the left, and those would be uh, missed with FlexSig. I've often um, thought about a flexible sigmoidoscopy alone equivalent to doing mammography of just one breast. Yeah, you'll pick up some malignancies, but you're, you're missing the other breast. That's correct. So yeah, it that's never correct. really made much sense to me to do just flex sig. 
Correct. It's been studied by modeling studies as, again, it has RCT evidence supporting its effectiveness in lowering cancer incidence and mortality, but we think we can do better for our patients. It has the advantage, however, of being office-based. It can be done without sedation. So I wouldn't say it's a useless test, but it has certain limitations. Colonoscopy is the criterion standard by which all other tests are assessed. It's a structural examination of the entire colon, but it does require the bowel prep that we talked about earlier. That's typically at least an overnight process, if not longer, in terms of dietary adjustments to help reduce uh, residue within the, the, uh, the colon. It often, you know, probably 99% of patients request that the procedure be done with uh, at least moderate sedation via um, benzodiazepine and narcotic pain reliever. So that will typically require that a patient needs to take uh, the day off from work and they typically will need someone to bring them to and from the exam. And those are kind of unmeasured costs, uh, the indirect costs that we don't sort of tally up when we're looking at the burden of the screening to our patients and to society. It's an invasive procedure. There is the uh, small likelihood of, uh, of a serious injury that is probably going to occur only one in 5,000 times or less. So that risk is very low, but not zero. What is more common would be adverse events related to sedation and or sometimes post-procedural pain that we pick up in the recovery area. That being said, observational studies show that it is a very effective test at reducing the incidence and mortality from colorectal cancer. We, we don't have randomized controlled trial evidence yet. Uh, those studies uh, are enrolling. Overall, I think it's a good test in expert hands. Uh, it is an operator-dependent test. So not every person who performs that test is as good as the next person at finding and removing completely those precancerous lesions. And so it has good observational evidence and a favorable safety profile in expert hands. I think the trouble with that is, you know, how do you scale that up to screen every individual over the age of 45? And can you ensure that really consistent quality nationally? That's where it becomes trickier. We do see that there probably is a greater benefit to reducing cancer incidence and mortality when it comes to the left side of the colon versus the right side of the colon. There's been a lot of attention in our national uh, specialty societies at improving colonoscopy uh, quality at educating each other on how to better recognize and completely remove lesions, uh, particularly on the right side of the colon. One problem that we occasionally come up against is the patient who is on the long-term anticoagulant such as warfarin. And I think we generally bridge those patients with uh, sub-Q heparin for the procedure. But a more common scenario is the patients that's taking antiplatelet therapy, such as aspirin. Any special uh, recommendations we should make for those patients? Yeah, so that's a great line of questioning. And, and we've actually, as a practice and, and a community in endoscopy, probably become more liberal than we had in the past. So uh, for patients who are on warfarin, if we have a low-risk procedure, a diagnostic procedure where we might just be taking biopsies, or a screening procedure where we're just looking in the colon, patients can actually stay on Coumadin as long as their levels are within the therapeutic range. And the same would go for Plavix or the direct acting uh, thrombin inhibitors. It becomes a different situation though when we have to use electrocautery to remove polyps. 
when we have to do any uh, intraprocedural cutting, such as needle knifing a papilla or placing a, a tube, dilating and narrowing, those are higher risk procedures for bleeding. And, and again, we would have to hold anticoagulation uh, and or bridge those patients. But for just diagnostic procedures where we would be getting biopsies, we actually frequently do not have to interrupt that therapy. Typically, if we have a patient who's on aspirin in particular, uh, we actually do not have to hold that before a procedure. If we run into a surprising situation and have to use techniques that put the patient at a higher risk for post-procedural bleeding, we will typically hold those agents for about three days after the procedure, typically before resuming those. And there are guidelines on that practice available from the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy and others where you can quickly find that information. In my own practice, I never try to memorize that. If I have to start or stop antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulants, I always look that up before providing discharge recommendations for patients. This has been a great discussion, uh, and we have been discussing colorectal cancer screening with Dr. John Kissel, a, a gastroenterologist from the Mayo Clinic. John, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It's uh, lots of new information out there. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to do so. It's a, a topic near and dear to my heart and uh, one that uh, we all will run into in our, in our practice and daily lives. Very true. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.